Things to cover tonight. I have my doubts as to how much I will get through everything, but we're going to give it a try. The only announcements I'm aware of is continued prayer for Camp Arete and personnel during the summer, and the annual church picnic uh, will be April the 16th. Annual church picnic on April the 16th. And then this Saturday, we're having our our March uh, men's prayer breakfast. Is that right or no prayer breakfast? No prayer breakfast. That's right. We canceled that. No prayer breakfast. Okay. Um, I think it's appropriate this time in our nation's history to be right, reminded of faith, trust promises. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. We do that through simply confessing sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have you to turn to, to trust at all times, that as we look at the world around us, from the chaos of terrorist attacks to the chaos of the economy and debt to the chaos of the political sphere and uncertainty there, and chaos around the world simply because we live in the devil's world and there are evil, sinful people who seek to destroy the light, to destroy that which is true, and to destroy freedom. And so that is always around. But our faith, our trust is in you. We pray that you would raise up men who would have the insight, the wisdom, the objectivity, and the skill to be able to protect this nation and to provide for our security. But ultimately, we know that you are the one who keeps us safe and secure. Fathers, we turn to your word this evening. We'll be reminded of your grace and your faithfulness many times. And we pray that that might help each of us realize that as many times as we fail, you are always true to your word and you are always faithful. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll give you a quick little update. Sunday after church, I flew to Washington, D.C., APAC had their annual national policy conference in Washington, D.C. Actually, it began early on Sunday morning, and by the time I arrived in D.C., it was too late to attend any of the events on Sunday, which is what happens when I don't get, don't leave, but it, with the Chafer conference and everything, it just wasn't a good time to try to get away 
uh, this year and, and missed that Sunday. And then, um, but I did go to the sessions on Monday. Monday morning session was Hillary Clinton. And then the evening sessions were the Republican candidates. And it was, it was pretty interesting. If you didn't watch Hillary's speech, it was a great speech. It was tremendous. She hit the ball out of the park. She said everything she needed to say to remind the Jewish people and the Jews here in America and Israel that she has their back, that she has always fought for them, and that she has always seen the importance of a strong U.S.-Israel alliance. And if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you in New York. The problem with her, as she went on in about a 15 or 20 minute speech, and it sounded like Ted Cruz wrote it, and it was absolutely brilliant. But there were a lot of very knowing, very aware people in that audience, and they weren't buying it because they know that, that as much as she talked about all that she did to provide for security in the Iran nuclear agreement, that, that she lied about everything, misrepresented everything that she said about her support and how critical and central her role has been in providing security so we'll, we won't have to worry about a nuclear Iran in the next 10 to 15 years. The trouble is that with all of her promises and all of her posturing, if you look at her tenure as Secretary of State, she didn't even try to do any of the things that she is claiming that she's going to do, which goes to the fact that as 67 or 68 percent of the American people believe, she is completely and totally untrustworthy. This is a woman who, in my opinion, should probably be brought up on charges of treason because of the way that she has handled, uh, the way she handled Benghazi and the way that she has uh made this country insecure by the way she flippantly handled her emails. And, uh, you know, I just hope that the FBI will will bring charges against her. That would be kind of fun to see the Democrat Party in almost as much disarray as the Republican Party. But what was interesting was I sat on the second level. It was held in the Verizon Center. It was almost full. And she's down in the center, so a lot closer than I've ever been to a speaker at APAC. Usually they're so far away in a long rectangular convention center that, that they're just barely this big, and you only see them because of the projections on the widescreen televisions. And, uh, but you could, you could watch her fairly closely. But the people around were interesting. I was up on the second level. Uh, and I could observe four or five sections around me, two or three or so on each side. And when she would make her points that and pause for applause, there was only at my level. Now, I could see that down on the floor and around there, there was much more of an applause. But at my level, there was only a few people. I'm telling you, 10 people, 15 at most, not 10%. Ten people or less that would clap. Sometimes she would say something that everybody wanted to affirm what she said, not that they believed her, and so there would be a more rousing applause. But I was surprised how few times 
people around me, and I was not sitting in a conservative Christian group. There were about three of us who were with the Christian delegation from Houston, and everybody else around us was Jewish. How many times they did not stand up, how many times they did not applaud at all, or if they did, it was half-hearted. That was just, that was my observation. Now, if somebody was sitting somewhere else, who knows what that was like there. And then last night, we heard from uh, John Kasich, who did a very, very good job. And, and, but people, people come, and the Jews know this. Politicians come, and they know what APAC wants to hear, and they say what APAC wants to hear. What they do is something else. For example, Every, almost every uh, presidential candidate for the last 25 years has come and promised that if they're elected president, they will move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is the eternal capital of, of Israel. But then they never do it. Ted Cruz recognized that in his speech and said, now I realize that everybody comes and tells you this. The difference between me and everybody else is that I will do it. So he made a point of that, and Ted has a history of doing what he, or at least giving a great effort to do what he promises to do. So John Kasich did did pretty pretty well and said all the right things, which would be expected of any Republican pretty much. Then Donald Trump came out, and of course there were all these protesters outside. When I got to the uh, Verizon Center last night, I went to one end where I had entered in, in the morning, and there was a long, long line, 30, 40-minute wait to go through double security and everything else to get into the building because Secret, Secret Service is, is protecting all of the candidates. But when, uh, but after I'd been there less than five minutes, all of a sudden I saw a large group of people leave and go somewhere else, and somebody had come out and told them something, and I went over and I said, well, where are they going? They said, well, there's an entry on the other opposite end of the Verizon Center, and you can go, go there, but you have to walk through a huge crowd of four or 500 anti-Trump supporters. And I went, that's no problem for me. And went down there, and they had a cordoned walkway for the people coming to the convention. They had an APAC security person about every 10 feet. So, uh, And the protesters were out there with all these signs accusing Trump of being a Nazi and everything else. And I got a couple of great videos of that, but I was running out of memory on my phone, and I wanted to have pictures of, of, of Ted Cruz. And I ended when I was deleting a bunch of pictures, I inadvertently de- uh, deleted both of those. But you can... Uh, Google that on, on YouTube and see something about that. But I thought Trump did really well, and, and Hillary in the morning was really attacking Trump, almost point by point. That's who she was speaking against. He, I, a lot of people thought that he would retaliate at night. He would take her apart piece by piece. He barely mentioned anything related to her. He did an excellent job of deflating the argument against him from his statement earlier that he would be a neutral, impartial, um, he would treat the, both, both sides in the Israel-Palestinian debate with, uh, with neutrality. And that didn't sit well with pro-Israel people, and he did an excellent job of going through and describing what his positions would be with regard to the UN and a number of other things. And some man who was sitting behind me had started off kind of mimicking and ridiculing some of the things that that um, um, 
that Trump said just to those sitting around him. And then by the time Trump was about three-fourths of the way through, he said, well, I don't dislike him or hate him like I did. So he made some headway. And he did, he, he, he did a good job and he really solidified his position as being pro-Israel. And then Ted Cruz came out and Ted was just the best. Ted hit it out of the park. And I was sitting not even 50 yards from where these candidates were speaking. So I had a really good ringside seat, but, but Ted did a super, super job and he hit all the high points and he, he has been studying this, and this is part of his background and his person as an evangelical Christian uh, for many, many years, that, that he probably has a better grasp of the issues and understanding of the issues than anyone else. And he made the point that he is not going to be neutral in relation to Israel and the Palestinians. He's always going to be on Israel's side. So he really did an excellent, excellent job. I think Trump's best line of the night was that he said... Obama has less than a year in office. Yay. And instantly, he got a standing ovation. I mean, it was just a knee-jerk instant reaction. Now, you're going to hear more about that. You're going to read about it because that generated some controversy. But, but that was, that was a great, and probably three-fourths at least of that packed Verizon Center bounded to their feet and gave him a rousing standing ovation. So they're not real pleased. With, and, and there's a lot of reaction in APAC to what Obama did in cramming that Iran nuclear treaty uh, down the throat of, of Congress and the Senate. And there's a lot of reaction to that. So that's pretty much my, my perception. I understand that uh, Netanyahu did really well today. Unfortunately, in the environment of the conference last week, I caught a cold, and by the time I got to D.C. Sunday night, I was already wrestling with this nasty little sinus infection or something. And so I ended up missing a couple of things because I just needed to get back to the room and rest and try to get, get past this. So that's my little summary of the APAC event. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is a significant chapter because it is in this chapter that Samuel gives his great address to the people at Gilgal. And the theme of this has to do with Israel's past failures and continued failures, but the ongoing faithfulness of God. That, And that is an important principle to remember. No matter how bad things are, no matter how bad we fail, no matter how many times we disobey God, and God is always faithful to his word, and he is always faithful to his people, and he always loves his people. And that becomes the major theme in this last section. We only got to about verse 15 last time. And this whole structure of Saul, I mean, of Samuel's address is what's, the Hebrew word is reeve, which means to contend with someone or to present a case against someone. And so there's a, there's a format that you usually run into in these kinds of addresses where the prophet is functioning like a, a defense, I mean, excuse me, a prosecuting attorney, and he is representing God and the Mosaic law, and he is bringing charges against Israel for their failure to keep, keep the law and what the consequences of that will be. So we're going to look at this, that the language all through here is very significant, and we're going to look at it in some detail. Now here's a map of the area of, of, of what is today called uh, Samaria, 
And here we have uh, Bethlehem. Jerusalem is just outside of Bethlehem down here to the uh, west of the Dead Sea. Nor, or, excuse me, they have Jebus located here, which is the ancient name for Jerusalem. Then you have uh, Gibeah, uh, which is Saul's hometown, Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown, Mizpah, and then Bethel, which is uh, another significant site that Abraham had visited, and he had built an ark, and he called on the name of the Lord. And that phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, is a phrase that indicates that he made proclamation in the name of the Lord, that he is uh, emphasizing the fact that, that what God has done for them, and he is, as it were, witnessing to the faithfulness and the integrity, uh, integrity of God. And to the east, just above the northern part of the Dead Sea, is Gilgal, which is the place where the Israelites first uh, gathered, reconfirmed the covenant with God when they crossed the Jordan River and when they first entered the prom- promised land. And so this is where they're meaning. This is the context of this address. And so we read in, in, um, in verse uh, 13. Here we go. In verse 13, the statement by Samuel, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. Twice he makes this point that this king, or having a king to rule over them, uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they came to Samuel and they said, we, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to have a king to rule over us like all the other nations. This was their desire. They wanted to do it. But, but much like, like Peter in Acts 2, um, that, that when he talks to the Jews and the audience there at Pentecost and he said, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, and then he says, God foreordained this from uh, the foundation of the earth. That this is a statement that involves uh, God's sovereign will to uh, His permissive will, as well as emphasizing human responsibility. And so we have two statements that emphasize human responsibility. First of all, He says, "You Israel chose the king. This is the king whom you have chosen. You can't blame God for this, and you can't blame Samuel for this." Second thing. He says it was a king that they desired, whom you have desired. This is the king you wanted. And then the third thing that he states is that the Lord is the one who set this king over him. So here we see human will in its interaction with God's will. Now, the best way to understand this is to put it in a graph. On the one hand, we have one category of God's will, and that is what we refer to as God's revealed will. Because God's revealed will is consistent with his righteousness, sometimes this is called God's moral will. But I prefer the term God's revealed will because the only place that we find it is in the Scripture, where it is revealed to us what God wants us to do through positive commands and through prohibition. So on the one hand, we have the revealed will of God. So when somebody comes and says, I really want to know what God wants me to do, uh, a good assignment is to look up the word will and the various places where the New Testament writer says this is the will of God and make a list and then say, are you doing those things? That's the starting point for doing the will of God. The other question that comes along, uh, area of will that is developed, is called God's 
permissive will, and sometimes this is called God's sovereign will, what God allows to take place. And this is important because sometimes God gives man the freedom to fail. You can't be free to succeed unless you're equally free to fail. This is a solution to the ongoing problem of evil. People say, well, how can you believe in a good God when there's all this evil? The reason is because God gave man freedom, and freedom to choose wrong is just as important as freedom to choose that which is right. And so God allowed Adam and Eve to disobey him and eat the fruit of the garden. That was not his revealed will. His revealed will was to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But his permissive will was to allow them to do that, knowing full well what the result of that would be. But the only other alternative was to create robots who had no volition. So this is what we see here. And in terms of God's moral will and our revealed will and God's sovereign will. So God's revealed will is what God expects of his creatures, what he reveals to his creatures about what he desires, what we are to do and what we are not to do. And God's revealed will is always consistent with his righteousness. It's always consistent with his perfect character so that we can prove, Romans 12, 2, that the will of God is perfect. Now, the other category, God's sovereign will, is not revealed or known ahead of time. The only way we can know what God will allow is to look backward to see what happened. We can't know it in advance. So so a lot of the questions that we ask in life about who to marry, where to live, where to go to college, how many children to have, uh, whether or not to take a promotion, whether or not to move to another city, these are not questions that are addressed in Scripture. What Scripture addresses is the wisdom that God gives through the knowledge of the Word of God to make wise choices and to put the results in God's hands. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We trust in the Lord with our whole heart, and He will make our path straight. If God really, really doesn't want you to go to Tarshish, then God is going to stop you from going to Tarshish. That's what Jonah learned. But God usually doesn't tell us ahead of time, unless you're in the Old Testament, what he specifically wants you to do in terms of his geographical will. I've had, and at the risk of using experiences uh, to illustrate this, I've had many times in my life where I technically had four or five options of things I could have done. But the reality on the ground was that when it came right down to it, there was only one option that was going to work. The others got shut down one way or the other. That's how God works. He doesn't, he's not playing a shell game with us where he's got a little pea hidden under the walnut shell and he's moving it around and saying, guess where my will is, A, B, or C. We just do what God says to do. We commit it to him. We pray about it, and we evaluate, analyze the situation, and make the choice that it most honors God. And sometimes God says, okay, the, the test here was how you would go through the procedure. So that's fine. We're not going to go there. But I just wanted to see if you'd learned how to make decisions. 
there are a lot of different things that go on in circumstances and situations, and the test is how we're going to walk with the Lord and to trust him. Well, that's what's going on here. So under God's sovereign will, we see that his uh, will works in such a way that he can allow human history to function freely and either allow or prohibit what man chooses. And when you get into Second Corinthians, he recognize, and, he's, and he's praising uh, the Corinthians for their giving, and he's praising the Macedonians for their giving, and he recognizes that that people desire to give maybe more than they have, and God honors the desire, even though God has not chosen to give them the resources to be able to fulfill the desire. So, God's will works in such a way that he can either allow or prohibit what humans choose to do freely, and that is why we call it his permissive will. So Israel could want to have a king, which is a wrong thing to desire, and they were wanted it the wrong way, and so God would would uh, uh, not allow it, uh, or Israel could want a king, but God would allow it. Those are the two options. Now, Israel wanted a right thing, but they wanted it a wrong way. But God wanted to teach them a lesson, so God allowed them to have a king, even though the results would be disastrous. It was through that that God was going to teach them and train them and hopefully bring them closer to himself. So God often permits us within certain boundaries to do the wrong thing. We think we get away with it, but eventually there are consequences. There are consequences that even if nobody else knows about it, when we're walking according to the sin nature, there are consequences to our own soul and that impact our own spiritual life. So in this situation, Israel wanted the a right thing, but they wanted it for all the wrong reasons. They wanted to have a king like all the other nations. So God is going to give them uh, what they need. Now, there's another example in the Old Testament where this happened. We're going to go through some of these examples in the Old Testament later, but I'm going to deal with this one first. And this is what happened when the Israelites uh, were grumbling and complaining about the fact that they didn't have any meat. They had manna every morning, but they didn't have any meat. And in Psalm 106.15, God said, And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness to their soul. See, sometimes God gives us what we are asking for because we think that's what we want, but that isn't going to satisfy what we really want. And so God is going to show us that the details of life are emptiness, they're vanity. They do not provide what we think they're going to provide. The word translated leanness here is a word that it can refer to a wasting disease. It's leanness in their uh, in their soul. So the question in relationship to their soul is, is this talking about a physical or a, an emotional, psychological uh, type of uh, type of disease, and it could be he sent disease into their life because the word for soul is often used to refer to to refer to life. So I wanted to look at the original context. We're going to spend some time uh, tonight, probably next week, going through these Old Testament episodes. One of the things that's become clear to me, and may not be as true for some of you in this audience, but for many Christians, especially younger Christians. 
They just don't know the Old Testament stories. They don't know the Old Testament episodes. They don't know what happened. They, if they're, if we're lucky, they may have heard terms like, like Meribah or, uh, Kadesh Barnea or Mount Sinai, but they have no idea what that means because they really haven't been taught, uh, the scriptures or they haven't read the scriptures. So they're, they're ignorant. Now this occurs in Numbers chapter 11. Israel has has left uh, Mount Sinai and they're grumbling and they're complaining uh, because they're not getting the right the right kind uh, of food. And in um, Numbers eleven eighteen, uh, Moses answers them says God's going to give you food. Says consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. That means to sanctify yourself. You'll eat meat tomorrow. You have wept in the hearing of God. You have been whining and complaining. We're going to see that word complain a lot tonight. You've been whining and complaining about God, uh, and God's going to give you meat. Uh, you've been saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. And this is where you get the phrase that that, that is found in literature and in everyday conversation, is people who hunger for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. And that is that when, after the Israelites left, after a while, they wanted to go back to those good restaurants and that fine cuisine that they had in, in Egypt that was highly seasoned, and they're out in the desert, and God's providing all that they need, but it's not sexy. It's just manna. It's got all the nourishment they, they need, but it's not seasoned. It's not, uh, it's not the comfort food that they grew up on when they were in Egypt. And they, they want to go back to, you know, to, to McDonald's and Burger King and whatever, um, southern fried chicken and cornbread, uh, whatever they grew up on that, that they really enjoy and that gives them that, that food comfort. That's what they want. And so Moses says, you're not going to eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days, but you're going to eat for 20 days. God's basically going to shove all this meat down their, down their throat. And in verse 20, it says that, they ate so much that it, they, they were throwing it up and it came out of their nostrils. And it became loathsome. They hated it. They hated the taste of the quail. And God gave them what they wanted. He gave it to them so much that, that it made them miserable uh, for a whole month. Verse 31 uh, t- describes this, how a wind came from the Lord and brought all these quail from the sea. And they crash-landed all around the camp. Um, for two cubits above the surface of the ground, so that's about a yard. That's about 36 inches. A cubit is somewhere between 18 and 20 inches, so that's around 36 inches high. That's 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 significantly high, and it surrounded uh, surrounded the camp about a day's journey all the way around the camp. So that would be about 10 to 15 miles. Uh, a yard high of dead quail. They, but remember, you've got two and a half to three million people, and quail just don't have a whole lot of meat on them. I've never, I, I've gone bird hunting a little bit, but it's sort of like you have to put forth three times the effort to get half the meat, and it's a little, little bit of a struggle there. So the people stayed up all night and all day, gathered the quail, they cooked it, they ate it. And the wrath of God was aroused against the people, and they had a very great plague. That God brought death into the camp. They overate in the extreme, and then they began to die. And the name of the place was called Kibroth Hata'avah, which means the graves of greediness. 
the graves of greediness or gluttony because that's what they did, and they buried the people who had yielded to that craving. Okay, now remember that. We're going to come back to that because that's part of what uh, Samuel is reminding the people about. So in the next verse, in First Samuel twelve fourteen, Samuel says, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice. Notice three verbs there. If you fear the Lord, if you serve him, and if you obey him. And it's important to understand the significance of those words because they go back and are used many, many times, especially in Deuteronomy and in the law. And so what, Moses, what Samuel is saying here is you need to go back and do what the law says to do. And the law again and again and again said to fear the Lord, to serve the Lord, to obey the law, Lord. And then negatively, he says, do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And many, many times they rebelled and complained against the Lord. And he says, if you do this, if you fear, serve, and obey, then both you and the king, because the king's got to fear, serve, and obey also, then both you and the king will continue following the Lord your God. But in the next verse, we get the opposite end of the statement. And this is uh, the contrast. He says, however, if you do it right, if you... If you fear, serve, and obey, God's going to take care of you. But if you don't, if you don't obey, if you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So it's important to take take the time to uh, go through this and see the significance of this language. Samuel's not just saying these things because because it, it, it makes sense or because he's trying to be hard on the Israelites at this time. Every word is picked because it's taking them back to what the requirements were for Israel under the Mosaic Law. It's going back to the stipulations of the covenant. See, he's, he's a lawyer, and he's basically he's functioning as a lawyer, and he says, this is what the Constitution says. This is what I hear a lot of people who, for one reason or another, don't like Ted Cruz. Ted, people don't like somebody like Ted Cruz because he's the, he's the referee. He's the guy who's memorized the NFL rule book, and he's the guy who's always saying, you've done something wrong. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't get away with that. And, and he's trying to hold everybody to the rule book, which is the U.S. Constitution. And that's not how you make friends or get popular, but that's how you preserve the freedom and liberty in a nation. And so Samuel is doing the same thing. He is calling the people back to obedience, the obedience of the of the law. And so you have these three verbs in the positive command, to fear, serve, and obey, and negatively not to rebel, uh, to uh, disobey, we would say, uh, against the commandment of the Lord. And then they have to watch out for the hand of the Lord. Now, the term, we'll see this used again, some places where it's used, hand of the Lord, a hand is what you use to to build things. A hand is what you do you, shows your power. The arm of the Lord is another uh, metaphor for the same thing, and it shows the the power, the strength of God. And it's with your hand that you paddle a little kid when they're disobedient. And so that is part of the background for this me- this metaphor. So he, he, they're warned that the hand of the Lord will be against you. The power of God will be against you if you're, as it was against your fathers. 
Now, there's an important thing. How was God's hand against their fathers? What were those historical situations? Joshua 24:14. Now, therefore, we read, he uses that same, same phrase, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. This is from Joshua's parting message to the people before he died. And he starts off with fear of the Lord. Why? Because fearing the Lord is more than just, it, it's not the idea of being afraid. Uh, often we hear people say it's the idea of respect. No, it is, it is a lot more than, than respect. If you've been in the military, fear of the drill sergeant is probably the closest analogy we could come up with. That when, uh, you mess up just a little bit and that drill sergeant comes down on you with every, uh, every, um, profanity that he can come up with and calls you every name in the book and tells you what a lousy failure you are and then tells you to drop and do 50 push-ups, you don't want to mess up. You have a fear of that drill sergeant because you understand that negative consequences are going to come. You can have the same kind of fear of your parents. When you're a little kid, you realize that everything can be wonderful, but then if you mouth off, then all of a sudden your mother's going to say, just wait till your father gets home this afternoon. And then you know you're really, really in trouble. At least that was the case with me. Um, so we read, therefore, fear the Lord. That's that idea. It's more than respect. It is being aware that, that there are consequences for f- wrong actions and disobedience, and God will bring those consequences. So he says, serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. See, even the conquest generation has a problem with idolatry. Again and again and again, we see this come up all through Israel. They are not loyal to God. The idea of of cleaving to God is the idea of being loyal to the covenant and doing what the covenant says they're supposed to do. Deuteronomy 6.2, we see the same phrase, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments. So we see there's this connection. Fearing the Lord means that you keep his word, you obey him, you keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 6.3 gives us the, the context. Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. 6.2, you fear the Lord, so what does that involve? It involves listening, studying, learning the Word of God. In their case, they would memorize the Word of God. Everybody would memorize it, and they were supposed to. Now, in the first temple period, many times they didn't. This became a major thing, though, in the second temple period after the Babylonian captivity because they got the stuffing kicked out of them in the Babylonian captivity, and they didn't want that to happen again. So they went overboard through legalism to avoid idolatry and to uh, come up with a lot of, of extra-biblical commands that would prevent them from being, from being disobedient. So they would memorize everything. They'd memorize the whole Torah, but that still ultimately didn't help. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear the Lord uh, your God and serve him. Notice how these, the command to fear the Lord is again associated with serving him and taking oaths in his name. That's saying I'm going to make a spiritual vow to obey the word of God. 
Deuteronomy 6.24. Notice all of these are from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a tremendous chapter that is reminding Israel of their covenant responsibilities to obey him. Uh, the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord. So how do you fear the Lord? You do what the Word of God says to do. Deuteronomy 10 is another chapter that uses this phraseology. In 10.12, uh, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways. That's another way of talking about obedience. And to love him. In the New Testament, we have the same thing. How do we love the Lord? By obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, some people think that's legalism to keep commandments. No, legalism is saying that that's the cause of our salvation or that's the cause of our blessing. But it's the responsibility of being a member of the royal family of God to walk according to the standards of the royal family of God. Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast. Isn't it interesting how we keep seeing these same words associated with each other. We don't necessarily find them all three together, but we frequently find fear him and serve him, fear him and obey him. That's the covenantal language. That's the legal language of the Mosaic law. Uh, Just a couple more verses. Deuteronomy 13.4, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and shall serve him and hold fast to him. You have several verbs there. Keep his commandments, obey his voice, shall serve him, and hold fast to him. That's four different verbs that reinforce the meaning of fearing the Lord. Deuteronomy 14.23 says that um, you are to pay, pay the tithes and that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Deuteronomy 17.19, it shall be with him, and he shall read it. That This is talking about the king, the responsibility of the king. He is to have a copy of the law. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law in context. So, again, Deuteronomy 31.12 and 13 reinforces this. I just want to make this this point that, that again and again and again, the legal language of the law reinforces this this fact, and it's often coupled with the negative language of not rebelling. Uh, and in in Deuteronomy one twenty six to forty three, now remember Deuteronomy is Moses parting sermons to Israel before before he goes up on Mount Nebo and goes to be with the Lord, and before they cross over the Jordan into Israel, and so he's reminding them of their past failures. And at the op- opening, he talks about this. You wouldn't go. Uh, talk, you wouldn't go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. So, verse 43, so I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And this is a reminder of what happened at Kadesh Barnea. At Kadesh Barnea, here we have a map. Uh, this is the traditional site of Sinai down here. Uh, it's probably located up here in the wilderness of Sinai, not this far south. There's uh, about three or four different places that uh, scholars think that uh, Mount Sinai was located, and there's a lot of debate about it. Someday we'll go through that. But up here, in this is the southern part of Israel today, Kadesh Barnea, and it is uh, where they entered into the land. And so we have to understand the significance of this that basically they sent out the spies, spies came back, ten spies says they're giants, there's many people, and there's walled cities, we can't do it. 
And two said, sure we can. God said he was going to give it to us. So the people uh, almost stoned Caleb and Joshua. They wanted to kill them because they said we could do this. And they thought, well, that would be like committing suicide. And then after God lowered the boom on them, Kadesh said, now you will never set foot in the land. They decided to do it on their own anyway. And that's what Deuteronomy uh, is talking about. Nevertheless, you wouldn't go up. You wouldn't go into is into the land. And then verse 43 said, afterward, they rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up, and many of them were killed. So this is the reminder again and again. So Moses reminds them, remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Now, these are summary statements, and I'm thinking, well, what did they do? And I thought, well, have I ever gone through and made a list of all the ways that the Israelites rebelled against God in the wilderness? Have I ever walked through that? Because there's a lot lot to that. So we're going to look at that fairly briefly, but you should write down the references and go back and read these Old Testament episodes and, and write it, underline things in your Bible, make notes, things like that. So we're going to break it down into the segments of the journey. They left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and they went to Mount Sinai. Then they spent a year at Mount Sinai. Then they left Mount Sinai, and they made it to Kadesh Barnea. At Kadesh Barnea, they have their major failure in the Old Testament and refuse to uh, trust God to enter the land. And so that generation has to wander in the desert for 40 years until they all die off and are replaced by the next generation. It's that next generation that will go into the land and conquer conquer the land. So we have the trek from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, then the 40 years in the wilderness, and leading up to the crossing into the Jordan. So at the very beginning here, we have a couple of different episodes that take place. Two different episodes that take place. The first is that the people, after they've left Egypt on their way to Sinai, were told that the people uh, complained against Moses. Now, that's a key word that you find over and over and over again, is that the people are complaining against God and they and against Moses, who's God's representative. They complained against Moses because they came to water. They were thirsty. They had they were running out of water, and they came to a place that later became called Mara. Usually it's written M-A-R-A, and it's from the Hebrew word that means bitter. And if you remember, if you've ever studied the book of Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law is Naomi. When Naomi dies, I mean, when Naomi's husband dies and when her two sons die, she says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. That's her response to the loss of her of her family. So the water uh, here is very bitter. It's alkaline. It can't be can't be uh, uh, taken. Can't be drunk. So God instructed Moses to put a tree in the water. Now that's not a chemical solution to the problem of the alkaline water, but it is God's solution because He's going to perform a miracle based on obedience. That is told in Exodus fifteen twenty two to twenty five. Then almost immediately after that, they began to complain about the lack of bread and meat. And the solution that God gave them was every morning, like dew on the ground, they would find these wafer-like, this wafer-like substance called manna, from the Hebrew ma, which means what, 
and na is uh, what it, basically. So they're saying what it is. And um, so the solution is man in the morning and then quail would fly into the camp at night. This is Exodus 16, 2-3. Now, this isn't the same episode that we talked about later in Numbers chapter 11. But here God is providing uh, pro- providing for them. And then the next place they came to was at Rephidim, and there was no water. So you have bitter water, then you have the lack of bread and meat, and then you have no water. And they called this place Massah, which means tempted, and Meribah, which means contention. There are two places that are called Meribah. And Meribah, the second one that we'll see, is the one that is usually uh, referred back to. And these are important because what happens at Masa and Meribah and what happens at the second Meribah, what happens at all these different places are constantly referred to again, especially in the book of Hebrews. They're the backdrop for much of what the writer of Hebrews says because he's showing how the Israelites are are saved, justified. We would say they're, they're all or pretty much all are destined to heaven, but because of their disobedience, they're not even going to get their rewards on the earth, which is which is the promised land. And so they're going to forfeit the temporal and eternal blessings of God, not their eternal destiny, but the temporal and eternal blessings of God in this life by their disobedience. And the application from the uh, writer of Hebrews is that we can do the same thing. So you have these three incidences that are described in ex- the last part of Exodus 15, 22 to 25, the uh, manna episode in Exodus 16, 2, and 3, and then the complaining at Rephidim and God's uh, provision of water. This is where Moses is told to strike the rock, and he is told to strike the rock, and he strikes the rock, and water gushed forth from it. Now, this is a probably a huge rock. If you've been down in the Sinai, been down anywhere near there, you know that there's huge rock outcroppings. Remember, you're providing water for two, probably two and a half million people. So this isn't just a good fire hose type of water. This is a major stream uh, that's going to come pouring out of the mountain. And uh, this is how uh, God's provided that, oh, God has provided that solution. God's, how God's then the next place we have rebelliousness is at, at, at Sinai. Now there's two things that happen at Sinai. The first is that as God takes Moses up into the mountain and God is going to give him the, the Ten Commandments and the whole of the Mosaic Law, he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people got impatient. Some people say, why would they get so impatient? He's gone for almost six weeks, Why seven weeks. Why would he be impatient? I know people who couldn't last six hours. Well, Moses is obviously lost. He left at noon. He's not back by dark. Let's go on. Uh, that's a lot of us. We just don't have any patience. And by the end of those 40 days, they've decided that Moses is dead. He's never coming back. And so they're going to convince uh, Aaron, who's their new spiritual leader, 
to build a molded idol from, from gold. They're going to contribute all their earrings and jewelry to melt it down. They're, he's going to build an idol like they saw in Egypt, and they will worship this, and they say, this idol, this golden calf, is the God who brought us out of Egypt. So they're attributing the work of God to this metal object. And as a result, when Moses comes down, the people are going to just having an orgy uh, in their celebration because this was all part of the sexual rituals in the fertility religions at the time. And Moses gets mad, throws the Ten Commandments down, breaks the tablet, and begins to reprimand the people. And God tells him to call out the Levites, the priests, whose role is to sanctify the people. And in order to sanctify the people in their disobedience, their their job that they're given is they are to execute as many as they can who are involved in this sin. And we're told in Exodus 32 that there were 3,000 disobedient Jews that were executed by the Levites. Now, a second thing that occurs there, and it's mentioned a couple of other times other than the passage I put up here, but the event itself is mentioned in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, is the rebellion of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are two of the sons of Aaron, and they are always mentioned together. And apparently they, they, uh, they hung out and they, they sort of conspired in disobedience against Moses. And so they decide that they're going to go into the, uh, tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies to put incense in the, um, altar of incense. But it's not the incense they're supposed to put in there. So it's called strange fire. What it means is they made up their own uh, brand or blend of incense, and they're putting that on the on the incense altar. And for that, they are immediately executed by God. And then, what's interesting is that after God destroys them, then He gave instruction to Aaron and his two other sons that they weren't to rip their garments and they weren't to visibly. Mourn. See, it's typical in those cultures that if you're going to mourn, you tear your clothes, you do, you put on sackcloth and ashes, you do these other things. He said, no, you're not going to mourn them because they died because they were disobedient. Now, he doesn't say that they can't, they're not going to publicly mourn them. He doesn't say you won't privately mourn because that would be impossible to do. But God says you're not going to make a show of mourning for them. And then we get to the next stage which is the long uh, the, the stage from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And then we get a longer one after that and I'm going to stop here. There's a good place to stop and we'll come back and we can finish the chapter next time. But all of this is because in these passages, what it keeps emphasizing is the disobedience of Israel by their fathers. And so what we're walking through here is the many, many ways that they were disobedient to God but God is still faithful. He didn't violate his covenant. He didn't say, I'm done with you. He continued to be faithful, even though time and time again, the Israelites disobeyed him and violated the covenant. And that faithfulness of God is still true for us, so that no matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've done it, 
no matter how many times we fail, the grace of God is always faithful to us. God's character is always faithful to us. It doesn't mean he won't discipline us, but he is always going to be true to his word, and we can always count on him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight and to uh, reflect upon your faithfulness and your goodness to us. And, and even though we often sin, we are often in rebellion, uh, Father, you always meet us with forgiveness when we confess our sins. You always meet us in blessing as we seek to to recover spiritually. And, Father, we pray that you would just uh, help with this negative example of Israel, help us to understand more fully your character, your faithfulness, and your goodness to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.